Well, happy Memorial Day, everybody. Yeah, happy <laughs> Memorial Day. I forget what we're supposed to remember precisely. Uh, there was a parade on my street today, so that was oh. loud. Interesting. <laughs> I, uh, I put in the Discord that uh, today is the day that one of my longest uh, running marijuana pipes broke three years ago. Oh. It was tragic, remembering a fallen hero. <laughs> Truly. I found, I've been cleaning out this shed to get ready to podcast in it, and I have found so many pipes that I forgot I had. Uh, <laughs> pipes that I owned, pipes that my friend asked me to hold on to, and then he quit weed and never asked for back. That I just forgot I even that. existed. I know you that know friend. that friend. Yeah, we all have that friend. But I, you literally know that specific friend. I do. <laughs> I. So my Memorial Day thing today was I went to go run some errands earlier and got stuck behind a group of uh, patriotic motorcyclists. Uh, oh boy! Who had. And this look, it's fine. You want to do your hooray America motorcycle drive around the city. That's they, they didn't seem to be bothering anybody. I don't want to be too much of a jerk, but like it was just very amusing because, you know, I'm sitting at a stop sign behind this train of like 20 bikes. And I noticed that on both of the ones that are like in the back closest to me, when the little flags that they have attached to their bike is whipping around, they've still got like the price sticker on them that they bought clearly this morning. Deeply invested in this love of country, I see. <laughs> well, who was that conservative politician who just did the thing recently where he posted an attention grabbing pic of him doing something, you know, conservatives like to do and this time it was fishing and everyone was sharing it and saying like look at his tackle box there's zero mud on it look at his shoes look at his boots look at his pants no mud there is no line on his fishing rod like <laughs> <laughs> oh man it truly is extremely performative <laughs> i mean i love to perform that's why i got into the performing arts i, I you know i talk a lot of shit about the duck dynasty guys but at least they had the dignity to start a tv show for their stupid performative stuff <laughs> <laughs> then they yeah then they were genuinely performers yeah well because they were all like a bunch of like i think hedge fund babies Something and then like that, yeah. if you look up photos of them before duck dynasty they're all like clean shaven boat shoes khakis button-ups and then now they're like they've been larping as du duck hunting southern fellas for well over a decade now, right? Something well, like people that? have realized that the Kid Rock demographic is extremely easy to make money out of. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> Because true. they buy into the persona of Kid Rock. <laughs> well, and they, there's a certain... Some people don't know, but I think also a lot of people don't care. Like, when wrestling uh, had kayfabe revealed, and they were like, oh, this is going to end the industry... I mean, it hurt it for a little while, but they bounced back and now it's bigger than ever. Makes sense to me. I feel like a lot of at least, you know, the, the people who I follow on Twitter who are wrestling fans are mostly just like that because they're like, yeah, I love the ridiculous, goofy bullshit, but I know it's mm -hmm. fake. <laughs> well, and almost like in a certain sense, it being fake makes you just a little bit more secure. Like when someone takes a big hit, you're like, oh, they're actually kind of okay. Well, yeah. well, except for how exploitative that industry is, so they probably yeah, still get a true. concussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Well, as long as we've finally made our way back around to exploitative industries. <laughs>
your favorite labor podcast. My name's John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show. So thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. It really does go a long way towards keeping the show going and allows us to do all kinds of great bonus content that you can get in the Patreon feed. If you're not in the Discord already, hop in there. It's a great place to hang out. If you are a patron and you need some stickers, just message us on Patreon and we'll send you stickers. If you want to help the show a little bit more, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or take out a 30-second advertising slot on WWE Raw. I think I said that correctly. Those might be two different yeah. things. I don't watch wrestling. Also, <laughs> if you jump in the Discord, there is the reading group for No Shortcuts. They're on Chapter 4. You can jump in at any point. There is not reading required, and you can learn some stuff about organizing. Yeah, so we'll just uh, jump right into it with kind of something we've been doing recently of trying to hammer out a few quick Headlines for stories that we don't have, you know, a ton of depth for, but we've got a trio of union victories from this most recent Thursday. We just want to send some shout outs to these workers who won their union elections. First, uh, the REI union drive continues its string of victories this time with their first win in the South where workers at the REI in Durham, North Carolina voted 20 to 12 in favor of joining UFCW local 1208. And this uh, all came after the company waged a fierce anti-union campaign at the store, including firing one worker for their organizing activities, all of which failed to stop the workers from their successful union vote. So congrats to these folks at REI Durham. Hell yeah. Then um, also on Thursday, we got another win in another uh, new retail Union Drive. We've got Hadley Mass, you know, popping up again, continuing to punch hugely above their weight uh, in the labor world. Uh, you know, this is the same small uh, town that launched the Trader Joe's Union Drive, and now they have become the uh, location for the second unionized Barnes and Noble store, which voted unanimously 11 to nothing in favor of also joining the UFCW, this time local 1459. Uh, they are the second Barnes and Noble location to unionize in rapid succession just after the company's Rutgers location unanimously unionized as well a couple of weeks ago and the company's largest uh, location in the United States, their store in New York City, uh, will hold its own union vote in the next couple of weeks. And Izzy Farrick, a barista at the store, told reporter Dusty Christensen this could be you. You could be winning your union election. You just gotta go do it. Hell yeah. I also love that we're seeing unionizing sweep through these Barnes and Nobles right after the Starbucks wave. Now, if we just get targets unionized, literally every Starbucks in America could be unionized fairly soon. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so um, I think there are also some in universities, but we'll, so we're also working on that. So <laughs> that's right. Uh, as long as we're talking about rounding out a bunch of victories, we did also see workers at the Chicago Academy of Sciences Nature Museum who voted 31 to 4 landslide in favor of joining AFSCME, the sixth museum in the city to join the union in the last year and a half. So pretty soon you'll be getting union tours. And in addition to teaching you about history or science or whatever, they will also <laughs> talk to you about why joining a union is such a good idea, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I love every time we get a story about a win for Ask Me, because every time I read about Ask Me, I can't help but thinking about the meme video that's a commercial for Ask Me, the fucking <laughs> union. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Oh, man. 
But, uh, and one last quick hit, which is uh, not a positive note. Uh, you know, I know it's backwards to end on a negative note here before we go into the full stories, but we talked last week about a string of labor legislative victories in the state of Minnesota, where we actually saw Democrats for once actually passing a few decent, uh, reforms, which were pretty good. Pretty happy about that. Um, and unfortunately, though, we had one of them get sabotaged this past week when uh, Minnesota Governor Tim Walls vetoed a bill that had passed the legislature to enforce a minimum wage for rideshare drivers with uh, companies like Uber and Lyft. Uh, Walls did that after Uber threatened to pull business from the state and basically just again, we have another instance of, you know, a, a Companies trying to wage a capital strike with these, what I prefer to refer to as terroristic threats uh, against the state. And it's really, it's not surprising to me, but still extremely disappointing and frustrating to see these high level democratic politicians cave into these threats from companies like Uber, like the Mayo Clinic over and over Mm -hmm. and over again. I I bet we could not only see that uh, they have their interest, that Uber has their interest, but they probably also funded Tim's campaign a bit, you know? So could very well direct (laughs) corruption. Yeah. Well, and if it sounds like Tim Walls might be more of a Republican than a Democrat after all, uh, that's because those are synonyms. They're very close. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So, but I I know it's, it's like, I hate being that guy who's like, see, look at the ways in which the structure adjusts itself back onto Mm -hmm. the path that it is supposed to go. But I mean, there you go. <laughs> You're a, you've been listening to the show for a while. You know how it goes. Well, uh, speaking of how things go, let's move to our main <laughs> stories about and this one about San Diego bus drivers. Uh, so in San Diego, about 400 bus drivers with the Metropolitan Transit System have been on strike since May 17th, demanding that the city change its current policy of requiring mandatory unpaid breaks for all drivers. Currently, during the middle of the workday, when ridership demand drops, drivers are forced to clock out and wait before clocking back in when demand picks back up in the afternoon. This results in workers ending their shifts after uh, 13 hours or no, this results in workers often ending their shifts over 13 hours after they began. That's basically meaning they they work like uh, four hours and then they have to take a you know three or four hour break or more and then they work the rest of their shift with no compensation for that middle period where they are just i guess expected to just sit around and wait yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah no it's it's stupid it, it's it's basically you're you tell folks hey we're hiring you as a bus driver it's it's an eight hour shift and then they come in and you're like it's not eight hours in a row. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. And so uh, these drivers who are members of Teamsters Local 683, they've said that, you know, they're like, look, we can't deal with this split shift system and we will keep this strike going for weeks if First Transit, which is the name of the private company that the Metropolitan Transit System, the MTS, hired to manage the system, because of course they couldn't just do that as a public agency. They had to do this as a public-private partnership for efficiency. 
and so quote unquote, right. And so first, if first transit won't agree to a fair change of their policy, then they'll keep this strike going. And first transit is actually, uh, not the highest level of this. In fact, uh, they are, uh, owned, they were recently acquired by a, another company that has become a bit notorious on this show for mm-hmm. forcing bus drivers to go on strike. Yeah, that is French transport management firm Transdev. Ooh, we hate you, Transdev. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they have been, you know, forcing workers in Northern Virginia around Washington, D.C. to strike over low pay and awful schedules, and now are doing the same thing to these workers in San Diego by making them work these ridiculous shifts where they're just like here, work four hours, then go sit around for five hours or whatever. And we're not going to pay you. Oh, and then come back and do another four hours. Well, and also it seems like it's not, you know, not that this would make it all that much better, but for instance, when a school bus driver takes their job, they know precisely which times they're going to be needed to come in compared to Transdev or First Transit or what have you, where I'm sure that they're trying to operate in a lean and flexible manner, Mm -hmm. which means your schedule is probably getting changed around all the fucking time. Right. Yeah. And even with that example, I mean, bus drivers in the past, we have seen complain about that split schedule and how they basically lose their entire day while only getting paid for the couple hours that they're actually driving. So this is very similar to that in that case. But we also heard from a local 683 business agent, Jose Puga, who said, quote, it's pretty much for profit. Instead of scheduling properly, they just stop paying them and say, there's no work for you. So just linger here for three or four hours and then complete the rest of your shift in the evening, end quote. And this is this is it's, ridiculous. It's like combining the worst aspects of piecework and shift work mm-hmm. into one system. It's terrible. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. It's like, well, imagine if you were like a salesperson and you had to like hit a button that clocked you out when you stopped talking to someone you were selling to. Yeah. Well, oof. Don't <laughs> don't say that cuz we're that's going to be a thing like in I don't know, two weeks. (laughs) Like you just created a startup. There's a, there's a software company being formed as we speak. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we should have the reading group tackle the lathe of heaven by. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, and so these are not the only bus drivers in California who have been forced to strike against first transit over these sorts of issues because there's 250 bus drivers in Orange County who also went on strike back on May 4th and they were on the picket lines for two weeks before the company who in the, in, in Orange County were planning to implement the same split shift system. Whew, that's a tough one split shift system (laughs) that they are operating in San Diego in Orange County. And they were able to get first transit to back off that and leave them at their current schedules. And so now, you know, you have these workers in San Diego basically trying to strike to get the better system that they have there. And of course, uh, first transit had to chime in on this with some PR boilerplate asked for comment by reporters from the San Diego union tribune. First transit said, quote, we look forward to continuing respectful and productive discussions to find a resolution that meets the needs of our employees and aligns with the long-term sustainability of our business. Okay, you just described bargaining in kind of, an, <laughs> in kind of a not useful way, but you described it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
it's clearly like uh this is i guess what what is really interesting about this is that when it comes to like the sustainability of the business like why is it that the workers are always the ones who have to take the cuts when right. clearly there's a bunch of bloat at the top like right. what is what does the fucking ceo need a million dollars for when the workers are you know being shafted every single day well and correct me if i'm wrong but under the prevailing logic of capitalism the doxa of capitalism the common knowledge of how the system supposedly works the owners are supposed to be taking that risk because that's their job right <laughs> like that's theoretically the job of the owners is i assume all the risk you hear it all the fucking time <laughs> Yeah, it's weird how they they keep saying that, but they never actually seem to do that. Mm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and the strike has been really effective. I mean, shockingly, as transit strikes tend to be, uh, it's brought uh, the bus services that First Transit operates in the San Diego area to a standstill, especially in the South Bay area, which is down to 10% of its normal capacity. Uh, <laughs> the head of the MTS has called on the workers to immediately end their strike, which like, man, you are talking to the wrong group of people. Like, the workers aren't the reason there's a strike. <laughs> like, talk to First Transit. Like, they're the, they can end the strike right now. Well, and also like M- MTS, you kind of gave up your your right to have a say in this when you sold, <laughs> when you auctioned off the the ability to control the transit system to a private company, right? Like, what, what are you bitching about? You failed already. <laughs> and it's funny because in all the articles about this, they are whenever anybody asks MTS about this, they're always like, "Hey, no, no, they're it's they're not striking against us. It's not us. It's a private company." I'm like. That it's the public bus system. The fact that you you like handed it over to a company so they could profit off of it does not absolve you as the public officials of your responsibility to to maintain the system. <laughs> well, and it's like if I walked up to you and I was like, "Hey, why doesn't my computer work anymore? You had it last," and you were like, "Oh, I didn't have your computer very long. I threw it in the lake right away. You should ask the lake." <laughs> like, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> and the lake in this case is the market yeah that's right true. that's right oh man well, but yeah anyway yeah. solidarity with these bus drivers like come on you can't have people be like oh yeah just sit around for five hours not get paid it'll be fine everyone else is at work during the day and there's no way for you to actually make a living doing this but do it anyway Ridiculous, ridiculous. Well, uh, moving to the other side of the country, we're going to talk about a popular DC restaurant that decided to close in the face of the of a union drive where they actually had an election coming up. And the thing about this is that they closed for quote like business reasons. But this is one of the most successful restaurants in the area. Yeah, this story is like one of those ones where it's funny because the framings that I've seen around it have largely been like moralistic, whereas I'm like, this also just seems like an incredibly clear labor law violation. So so to get right into it, um, this is a uh, about a very popular restaurant that recently opened in Washington, D.C. It's a Vietnamese restaurant called Moon Rabbit. This was opened uh, by celebrity chef Kevin Tien. It's been incredibly popular, extremely successful. Uh, this And this is a restaurant that operates out of the Wharf Intercontinental Hotel. And workers at the restaurant, many of whom had come to the restaurant specifically, like, because they were excited to work at a restaurant run by this uh, this chef Tien and and 
were very excited about this business, but they encountered while working there uh, conditions that they mo- that motivated them to organize a union. And in response, uh, they've just uh, rug pulled everybody and they've just decided, oh, sorry. We're, yeah, we know that this restaurant's really popular and everybody loves it and we all love working here, but it's gone. Yeah. And the thing that is interesting about that is the the hotel situation, because the hotel was putting pressure on the restaurant to do the union busting, not to say that they wouldn't have done the union busting either way, but to have two separate employers putting pressure on this union is pretty interesting. And I'm not entirely sure what sort of legal precedent that would set. Right. Yeah. So the uh, the DCist, which is a local news source, spoke with Unite Here Local 25 about the efforts to unionize at the restaurant and the Wharf Intercontinental Hotel that they re- operate out of. So the workers of the hotel announced their drive last month in April, fighting against low wages, theft of tips, and bad working conditions. And workers who were interviewed by the DCist said they absolutely view the closing of Moon Rabbit as a response to the union drive. We also heard from Paul Schwalb. Great name, by the way. Secretary <laughs> right. Treasurer of Local 25, who said, quote, they're willing to destroy a top 10 restaurant in order to in order to keep the union from coming into the hotel. He also told The Washington Post that the owners are, quote, desperate to keep the union out of their hotel and did whatever that took, even if it meant parting ways with a star chef, even if it meant disrupting the livelihoods of dozens of workers and their families, end quote. of workers at the hotel have already signed union cards prior to the closing and had filed an official election petition on May 1st. So, you know, also in typical business fashion, um, despite how hard they cracked down, it seems like they didn't move fast enough anyway. Like they're still going to get their shit rocked by their workers at that hotel. Yeah, although it does make me wonder, like, if they have, like, the successful union election, these people won't just be like, we're closing the hotel. (laughs) (laughs) I know it sounds ridiculous, but, I mean, I think closing this restaurant was ridiculous. Like, for, like, they they literally, the Moon Rabbit, this restaurant, this hoity-toity fancy restaurant, which by all accounts is incredible, was recently named one of the top 10 best restaurants in the entire country. Right. And they're like, a union? No, thanks. Burn it all down. Well, while I totally agree with you, I think it's so much less likely for them to just shut the hotel down because restaurants operate on relatively thin margins, whereas hotels are making money hand over fist. It's That's like true. almost all profit. So they probably saw the restaurant as something to augment the hotel or like it probably made money, but at the equivalent of like a loss leader or a margin mm. leader, you would call it. But then like... Are they going to stop renting out rooms? Absolutely fucking not. I don't believe that for a minute. Fair. At least, that, you know, I well, hope I'm not wrong. You, well, and what can you do with a building that was designed to be a, a hotel anyway, besides just put another hotel there? I mean, I guess maybe they would just pick, pick what? Make it a dorm. Sell it yeah. to the university. Oh, <laughs> public housing. Nationalize it and turn it into public fucking housing. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> this is a... Nice, Moon uh, Rabbit 2. This time it's run by the workers themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and it's even better. Truly Vietnamese inspired. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as you said, the restaurant was recently named one of the 10 best restaurants in the country. And Chef Kevin Tien has made statements indicating he may open a new version of Moon Rabbit elsewhere. Um, so it's crazy that they they gave up on their relationship with him. Uh, everything points to a successful and profitable restaurant with absolutely no reason to shut down. So um, where are we? 
Oh yeah, the day after the announcement of the restaurant's closing, Unite Here filed ULP charges against IHG, the company that owns the hotel. These charges specifically allege that it was hotel management who pressured TN to close the restaurant and move it elsewhere in order to disrupt the union drive at the hotel. They they charged the hotel with attempting to intimidate the organizing workers. Workers also filed charges of wage theft against the hotel, with some workers who worked both as servers and bartenders charging that they were paid the lower server rate their entire shift even when they were bartending, which is supposed to be paid at a higher rate. Hotel management, of course, denies that the move has anything to do with the union drive or that they've committed wage theft. But the truth is obvious. But also, (laughs) the truth being obvious has not stopped thousands of corporations from successfully claiming that closing a store had nothing to do with a union drive. So yeah yeah as usual and i mean that that tactic of like having someone fill in for a higher wage uh position while getting paid that lower wage that form of wage theft is incredibly common Mm -hmm. it is it's just so easy to be like oh could you just like cover the bar for like the rest of your shift oh yeah no just you don't need to write anything down we're just gonna pay you your normal rate yeah well and like IHG, like the company that owns like this place is, is, isn't some, you know, small business tyrant, like outlier or anything. They're one of the biggest players in the hotel industry. They own 6,000 hotels. Oh, wow. Uh, What does the H stand for? Hyatt? Yeah. Well, it's international like hotel group uh, or intercontinental hotels group. Sorry. They own a holiday inn. Gotcha. So. Uh, yeah, it's a giant corporation and part of the way that you get to be one of the monopoly companies that dominates an entire industry is by ruthlessly crushing your workers, uh, at every step of the way and just being more exploitative than the next guy. Mm -hmm. Um, but thankfully, you know, the workers are not just accepting this lying down. Um, in addition to filing ULP charges against the hotel unite here has begun picketing the hotels to explain to patrons what management has done that they'd rather shut down this wonderful restaurant that assuredly a lot of people coming to the hotel were looking forward to going to uh then they would you know then just paying the workers more to work there uh they've also encouraged members of the public in the dc area to boycott uh ihg hotels in the city especially ones that don't have unions uh, specifically the willard intercontinental the clinton george hotel and the hotel indigo old town alexandria so but the thing is like again like kind of kind of like you were alluding to john like regardless of this move and they're just like ah we'll we'll stamp this union drive out at the restaurant it's like man like 80 percent of the employees at the hotel have already signed cards like (laughs) and they are clearly not slowing down and one worker who spoke anonymously told the washington post quote i think this has just made us more angry i see the vast majority of us staying for sure end quote i like that attitude yeah i mean so it makes sense absolutely and i i mean i everything about this it really does look like despite this very stupid self-sabotaging move that these workers are going to win their union and they fucking deserve it so you know solidarity to these workers at the wharf intercontinental in dc and good luck with your election Absolutely. Well, as long as we're talking about workers who need some solidarity, Mm -hmm. let's talk about an emerging industry in the United States, the legal weed industry, which has seen explosive growth over the last decade as more and more states have legalized recreational marijuana use, and especially in places like Michigan, where there are price wars driving the prices through the floor. This has created massive profits for many of the major players to get into the industry early, as well as rapid job growth, which entices many towns to provide incentives for companies to bring their 
their production there. But we heard from an investigation by Dusty Christensen for The Nation, which revealed the working conditions faced by those employees in this young industry uh, reveal many of the same oppressive problems long faced by workers in other industries. Surprise, surprise. So dangerous working areas full of dust from weed plants and sometimes dangerous mold, lack of sufficient ventilation and filtration, long hours with repetitive motions, abusive management, and union-busting lawyers have defined the job for many of the workers powering the rise of legal cannabis. And just a disclaimer, obviously we think weed should be legal, and we think all of those people who are in jail for it should be let out of jail, and we Mm -hmm. really should just work our way towards the end of drug prohibition in general and provide restorative systems for people who need help with addiction or any other type of drug-related issue. Air horn noise. Yes, but this (laughs) investigation has revealed that... Once anything becomes a capitalist industry, it starts to experience the exploitation inherent to capitalism. And Mm -hmm. we find that this is just as prevalent in cannabis as any other industry. So while states like Massachusetts have claimed that upon legalization, they would provide resources to support local small businesses uh, by those previously harmed by the criminal justice system, it turns out the actual mechanism for providing that support have been very slow in coming and largely insufficient in an industry that requires substantial upfront capital costs to be competitive. I remember initially saying when states first started legalizing that it would be Budweiser and Philip Morris. And Mm, that was a little too pessimistic, but I was not that far off. Yeah, Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. It's like you could tell right away the way that this, all these laws are being crafted. You're like, so monopoly interests are just going to come in there. There's going to be like three weed companies, like right. period. <laughs> well, right. But and, that's not, uh, hap- that, that's not quite yet. There are definitely some major players, but you know, I just like think about, uh, I, I always go back to like the early history of the teamsters when all of the little companies are fighting against each other, driving the prices down and then trying to lower wages and then exploiting the workers. And then the workers have to form unions. And, uh, I think we're kind of around that point, maybe Maybe just mm-hmm. with a little bit more of an update into the modern you know, well, era. I think that's an interesting point because it, it points to this kind of dialectical thing where it's like emergent industries are initially a disaster for workers in many situations. But it's that impetus of the disasters of emerging industries that can lead to more labor solidarity down the road if the workers are educated and mobilized and organized in the correct fashion to respond to it. Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to, of course, these tendencies towards concentration resulting in like a few giant players, uh, you know, operating the whole industry that carries along with it, all these other capitalist incentive pressures, such as again, constantly forcing wages down and refusing to spend money on things like maintenance and safety measures that of course, uh, we have seen at so many other corporations around the country, you know, rail being one of the most obvious. And so, uh, this investigation that the nation did into the conditions faced by workers in the legal weed industry focused largely on Massachusetts and specifically centered on the town of Holyoke, which has issued 80 licenses to marijuana producers, which is more than any other town in the state. 
And uh, True Leave, which is one of the biggest legal weed producers in the country, has set up a large grow and packaging facility in Holyoke. And while the locals in the, in the town, you know, welcome the, the new jobs and the money that that's brought into the city, it's come with a lot of issues. Like True Leave specifically is notorious, apparently, within the weed industry for unsafe work conditions. And they were fined over $60,000 in the last few years by OSHA in Massachusetts, Florida, and Pennsylvania, all for unsafe work conditions. And while $60,000 does not seem like that much, and certainly is not that much to a company as big as True Leave, uh, considering OSHA like never finds anybody anything, that's actually a relatively large fine by their standards. Um, and other major players like Cureleaf and Green Thumb Industries have faced similar fines for similar problems. Cureleaf was fined for unsafely blocking access to emergency exits, and Green Thumb Industries was fined for conditions that eventually resulted in an ethanol explosion at one of their facilities. Oh my god. Uh, so that's not great. And, and at least and the, the, the real damage is at least 35 workers have died in the industry from, tw- from 2016 to 2021. So an average of seven workers per year, as far as we know, in an industry that still does not have the level of regulation that you would expect in a lot of the more mature industries. And based on an investigation done by the LA Times into this, the vast majority of those deaths have been involved in problems of ventilation, where especially carbon monoxide poisoning due to insufficient ventilation in greenhouses, as well as temporary housing that's used for workers on farms. Yeah, I mean, these are some of the kind of classic when it comes to at least the housing uh, are just like classic farm issues when it comes to like the conditions that that farm workers have to uh, work under. But I also think that because this industry is so new and often does operate on internal like greenhouses that are inside, they just like bought a warehouse and threw a bunch of plants and lights in there Mm -hmm. and said, all right, get to work. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, exactly. Cause it's like, this is, this is the other side of what, you know, you hear like right-wingers always complain about, Oh, there's so much regulation. There's so much red tape. And it's like, well, yeah, if you don't have regulation, this is what you get. You get people who die from carbon monoxide poisoning. Cause you don't have standards for ventilation. Yeah. Like, it, it's, it's wild, uh, to, to not even have like, you know, it it is like a building requirement in many places to have like carbon monoxide sensors. Mm-hmm. And I just cannot imagine that, that this is not due to direct like an incompliance. And then, you know, even if it wasn't, that is se- like severe negligence on the part of, and, and like, you know, almost to the point of being purposeful by these business owners. Well, severe negligence is nothing alien to the company of True Leave, who is largely focused on in the piece, because they have faced fines for a litany of unsafe conditions, including exposed live wires which shocked workers, dangerous moving machinery which lacked protections, a total lack of PPE, and dangerous respiratory conditions. And it was this last one which resulted in the most tragic case of these dangerous work sites, when last year, on January the 4th, 
a young worker named Lorna McMurray died due to inhalation of dust at the Holyoke Grove facility that she worked at. That day, McMurray noted she was having trouble breathing due to all the dust in the air at the facility. She later had an asthma attack, which she had never had before working at the site, lost consciousness, and died a few days later. Trulieve was fined only $35,000 for allowing the conditions that caused her death, and even that paltry sum was later dropped to only $14,500 on appeal after agreeing to finance and conduct a study on the effects of cannabis dust in the air at production facilities. Meanwhile, Trulieve posted profits of $682 million last year. Yeah, so they're really going to feel the impact of that $14,000 fine. Um, and, and having to fund a study? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Pay restitution to the family, you psychos. Yeah, Jesus and, Christ. And it's like, why well, you already have... You, their, their working conditions are the study. What do, you, what do you need to study? Like, just talk to the... The workers can tell you what the impact... You could talk to them right now. Like, or, or the family of this poor woman who died. Like, you can see what the conditions are. You don't need to do a study. The impact is already seen in the lives and bodies of the people that work there. So you can just talk to them and find out, obviously, that there needs to be a ventilation standard enforced upon all of these companies that they have should have to pay for, that they should have to provide PPE to all these workers every mm-hmm. day, and that there should be a, some sort of you know state independent monitoring board, probably again paid for by a tax on these companies, that will go around and randomly check the air quality in these places so this never happens again. Well, that sounds suspiciously like regulation. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things that I think is also worth pointing out is the this the kind of faux commitment to, you know, restitution for people who were charged with crimes uh in relation to like drugs like marijuana. The, these people, if they have been in the industry, if they know these things, you could talk to them. They they mm-hmm. would know, but I doubt that those people are being consulted. I bet that many of them have, you know, if they're lucky enough to have their records expunged, just left to with nothing. Mm-hmm. Right. And rather than spending money on things like, you know, maintenance for their facilities, ventilation, or just safety equipment at all, uh, they have instead found plenty of resources to spend on union busting lawyers. Uh, CEO of True Leave, Kim Rivers, who made $8 million in con- uh, compensation last year, she traveled to Massachusetts from the company's uh, Florida HQ specifically to help stop a union drive at one of their facilities. Uh, INSA, which is another uh, major cannabis company operating in Holyoke, hired union busting consultant Katie Lev, who had previously been found to have broken labor law during union elections that she was consulting for in order to stop drives at that company. She was also the same union busting consultant was also hired by holistic industries uh, uh, to union bust at another union drive at a cannabis plant in Monson, Massachusetts in 2021 and Curleaf and green thumb two of the other mega companies in, in the legal weed business also poured major financial resources into union busting. Although, however, at least in the case of Green Thumb Industries, they poured a lot of money into a failed union busting effort because their Holyoke facility is now, in fact, unionized and represented by UFCW Local 1459 and assuredly all the safer for it. 
Yeah, these all these efforts, I mean, they have not all been successful, however, and both the Teamsters and UFCW have made inroads at the major cannabis companies, especially in the Midwest and on the West, on the West Coast. Workers at Flores Terra Cannabis in Santa Rosa, California, voted to join Teamsters Local 665 after experiencing many of the same conditions as workers in Massachusetts. Anthony uh, Buenavides... Uh, a trimmer interviewed by the nation said, quote, we unionized because there was a lot of problems going on in the facility. Everything from the treatment from the higher ups wasn't respectful and wasn't appropriate for the workplace to being exposed to mold, to working conditions, always being changed, not even being allowed to sit, end quote. And, you know, one thing about this that I got to say we're still a mold podcast, folks. That's true. <laughs> We've been a mold right. podcast for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, this is one of those things that I, like, I just don't get about manager brain, the no sitting thing. Like, they're trimming wheat. Why? They're, it's not even like, oh, customers will see workers not, not busy. Like, they're in a weed warehouse. Like, what? Why do you want them to be standing up all the time? Well, and we know it's not like there are some things that bosses do that seem inexplicable, but are just like basic motivations of capitalists. But like yeah. capitalists all across the world, let their employees sit. It's like only in America do we have some like weird ass fucking fixation with standing the whole day while you work as if there's a big American flag in front of every desk <laughs> and you're supposed to hold your hand over your heart and recite the Pledge of Allegiance while you do your shift with your left hand. <laughs> the I, uh, cycle of production is truly the most patriotic American act. <laughs> well, and I almost wonder if it if it is like slightly more recent because I don't know. I, you know, as you scroll through like social media, and you get like these suggested things. One of the ones that I get suggested to as following lots of worker pages was like these this old knife sharpener building where they are literally laying on their stomachs on this board and like looking down at the floor sharpening knives, and it was so that they could protect their backs from not being hunched over all day mm. and i thought oh that's kind of interesting meanwhile like people who are trimming marijuana plants are forced to stand yeah so really what this you know investigation from the nation i think ultimately reveals is exactly what the workers involved with all these union drives have been saying which is that because there's no regulation in this industry because the legalization of weed has been left to the market to the capitalists and not to, you know, uh, the workers actually doing the work to run the industry. It's developed all the same problems as every other industry. And therefore every one of these workers desperately needs a union so that they can fight back against these awful working conditions, which again are bad enough that they are literally deadly. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, while, of course, we support, you know, ending the drug war and mass incarceration, uh, the new emergent industries like legal weed, like, are still subject to those same capitalist incentives. And so just as badly need workers organizing against the weed bosses who are just as bad as all the other bosses. Absolutely. That's right. Well, uh, speaking of bad bosses... Uh, I think that this is yeah. going to be one of the, uh, <laughs> these are like the, the poster child of, of, of bad bosses when it comes to, to this in, at least in the, the modern era, the uh, tech folks, industry we're, folks, we're heading yeah. to the West coast to a little place known as Silicon Alley. 
Yeah, right. So the, the tech industry has been rocked by a massive series of layoffs at giants like Google, Facebook, and many others. Companies have announced plans to slash tens of thousands of jobs in the name of efficiency, leaving many workers shambling to find out if they are even able to keep their jobs. Now, some of these white collar workers at Amazon are organizing to fight back against the lack of control over their jobs after the company has cut 27,000 jobs in just the last 18 months. That On is Monday, so many cuts. That it's is, a lot. It's that a that is a wild number. number of jobs. Yeah, they laid off a small city. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, yes, this is, that's actually a, a very good approximation of how many jobs <laughs> that is. On Monday, May 22nd, a reporter by the Washington Post said uh, Amazon workers announced a push for a company-wide walkout on May 31st to protest the climate of fear and recent firings, or that the recent firings have created. One Los Angeles area worker on an anonymous online board for Amazon employees said, quote, morale feels like it's at an all-time low. In meetings and one-on-ones with colleagues, there's so much uncertainty and lack of clarity from leadership. It's it's an unsettling time to work at Amazon, end quote. Organizers are hoping to see at least a thousand participants in the wa- in the walkout in the Seattle area alone. Now, one interesting thing about this, if you heard me say Washington Post and Amazon in the same thing, I wonder he, that for one, the Washington Post is owned by Bezos. Now, mm-hmm. is this not surveillance of worker activity? <laughs> well, look. <laughs> No, I mean, like, this is actually a pretty decent article. Like, it it bends over backwards to be, like, asking for comment from Amazon on stuff. But it's not, you know, it. They A, they actually reported on it, which I will give them credit for. And B, they don't seem to be entirely lying about it. But it's definitely not emphasizing, you know, how exploitative a lot of these conditions are. But, you know, it, the, to be fair... For a paper owned by Jeff Bezos, the very fact that they reported on it, I was surprised by. (laughs) Well, it's kind of interesting because people will say like, oh, it's a limited hangout. Oh, they're trying to spin it in a certain way. And it's like, well, also the lower, you know... Jeff Bezos doesn't directly control and right. operate every right. business that he runs. He's not an editor. Like yeah, it's, right. not the, it's not the Pittsburgh Post Gazette where they're literally putting out propaganda against their union. It's not Tony Shitso's plumbing from me, Tony Shitso, the only employee. <laughs> right. And this like and Amazon also, their their public image has also already like taken a hit, so it's not like this is really gonna Right necessarily move that many hearts and minds or get people to cancel their more importantly to them cancel their prime subscription but like uh so these layoffs uh that you know have recently happened all across the tech industry obviously twenty seven thousand at one company is wild for amazon but you know meta google apple all these other places have also been firing thousands and thousands of workers and and as at Amazon at all these companies, these have also been paired simultaneously with an effort to impose a very strict return to the office policies, specifically as a form of labor discipline, because uh, that, that, you know, helps 
bosses in a number of ways, uh, despite the fact that it's completely unnecessary for their business to continue functioning. Uh, one, you know, having them come into the office uh, justify is, is very important for mid-level management because it justifies the existence of their jobs, <laughs> which are unfortunately exposed to being largely superfluous during uh, remote work when the workers without that constant annoying domineering supervision are somehow shockingly still able to actually do their work. <laughs> um, so that's one of the things, but Another one is that the return to the office policy actually sort of serves as a stealth layoff because there are plenty of workers who simply will not be able to quote unquote return to the office, especially if they'd never actually worked at said office in the first place, as is the case for many workers. They'd be forced to sell their homes, root up, uproot their whole family to move sometimes across the country to an office they've never been to. I think that one other thing that is kind of not really uh, talked about enough is the secret solidarity of the bourgeois with the landlord uh, like aspect of the bourgeois class in that they don't want the people who are owning all of these office buildings to be so mad because they are all kind of in it together. Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting to see because there are like there's like simultaneously contradictions playing out between the 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 different fractions of the bourgeois, but there is definitely that that amount of of solidarity, not in so much of like I see you as this as my equal, but more as well, we should both be crushing these people, the pores. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that's more along the lines of the solidarity there, but um, and, and in addition to obviously these return to office policies unnecessarily increasing COVID risk for everybody involved. Like, uh, you know, it, like it just continues to implement these systems of control on workers, which is, you know, what the managerial strata within these businesses all really rely on, uh, to, to run things the way they think they should be run. And I understand that perhaps some of our listeners or the straw man version of our listener that I've created in my head uh, <laughs> may find it a little more difficult to sympathize with, you know, the tech workers at Amazon compared to perhaps, you know, the folks that are forced to piss in bottles uh, and spending 12 hours in a hot warehouse moving heavy boxes. But one thing that I would appeal to this straw man of a listener who I have invented and probably does not exist uh, would be that, you know, we've seen how drastically Amazon has scrambled to try and deal with organizing drives by their warehouse workers. Imagine how much harder it will be for Amazon if they have to fight a war on two fronts. Yeah, take Ah, that top Patreon subscriber, Caleb Maupin. (laughs) (laughs) He is always coming into the comments and saying shit like, they're not real workers. Tired of his ass. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is like, just generally, I mean, even for our enthusiastic listeners, I think like, you know, the opportunity to get these tech workers on board with the broader union drive at Amazon is huge. Like mm-hmm. their ability to, to, to disrupt the functioning of Amazon, because like as much as Amazon loves to portray everything within their system, all their code as automatic. Again, it takes thousands and thousands and thousands of workers to make all that shit function, to make the system of exploitation that produces two-day or same-day shipping, to make that possible requires these systems of technology that these workers operate. And so being able to simultaneously add the leverage of these workers to the leverage of the workers in the warehouses and the leverage of the workers who are delivering all these packages, I mean, it's just a... 
a literal force multiplier. And so like, I think that seeing this union drive start to emerge, even if it's not explicitly aiming for a like NLRB election, actually forming like a, like joining the CWA sort of thing, even though it's not that it's just planning a walkout. You know, we saw a walkout at Activision before we saw a union drive. So I, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of potential here at a company that desperately needs a union in all aspects of its work. Yeah, that's right. So another thing that we have been covering kind of in that kind of tech realm is the idea and the threat of AI. And we have got an example of exactly what we have been talking about in regards to it solely being used as a form of labor discipline rather than an actual means of replacing the workers themselves, uh, this time not only hurting workers, but also the people that this company claims to want to help in the first place. So to, to get into the story, a few weeks ago on May 4th, Labor Notes published a piece from a worker at the National Eating Disorder Association on how AI is already being used as a union busting tool. The NEDA operates a 24-7 hotline for folks to call if they are if they're struggling with eating disorders and they may speak to a counselor to try to help them. The hotline has a small staff of about a dozen full-time people who help coordinate the work of hundreds of volunteers to answer calls. Earlier this year, the full-time workers voted to unionize as uh, Helpline Associates United and join CWA local. 1101. Two weeks later, NEDA CEO Elizabeth Thompson announced that the entire st- the entire full time staff would be fired and replaced with an AI chatbot as of June first, and the hotline will cease to exist. <sighs> yeah. The, this story, like I saw, so it's funny. Cause like the, the blog part, like from the actual worker who, uh, you know, was involved in this, who wrote on labor notes that actually came out a few weeks ago and I, I missed it. Uh, uh, but I saw this was going around all over Twitter, uh, this past week after vice reported on it. And it is really exemplary of this, the, of where we're at with AI right now, because, you know, of course the NEDA claims that this has always been the plan. This is, it's just a quinky dink that this is happening right after these workers started a union drive that, Oh, we, you know, we, we really needed to, to just be efficient here at the national eating disorders association, which is of course focused on efficiency for some reason and not helping people. Um, and and so we need to trim staff to save money. And so like, but again, it's like, who believes that you did this two weeks after they formed a union? Like, come on, (laughs) you expect people are, stupid and like and it's it's extra bad on top of just because like the workers weren't even asking for more money like the union has been primarily just asking for a few extra people to be hired now yes i understand that costs more money but like it's literally just saying you can keep the wages the same we just need a few more people so that we're not stretched so ridiculously thin and you know it's like six people managing a volunteer staff of 200 i mean frankly that does seem like they're stretched too thin and could probably use a few more people Mm -hmm. Uh, but instead instead they'd rather be like well yeah but what if what if we had zero people 
Yeah, and what if we just had a robot instead? The robot is called Tessa, and it was made at Washington University, and it's not even a chatbot like ChatGPT, in that it has a very limited range of responses meant to stay within its basic mission. <clears throat> but here's what's interesting, is that a range of limited responses are not going to help somebody with a disorder that they mm -hmm. feel like they have to reach out to a hotline or a chatbot or whatever for. So it's been specifically trained via input uh, of an, an enormous amount of data to respond to clients struggling with body image issues. And yet, to nobody's surprise, it is nowhere near capable of serving as a replacement for the hotline. As a reporter for Vice tried to test the chatbot, providing the sort of comments typical from someone seriously struggling with an eating disorder, the bot refused to respond to the majority of the messages. So, it, like great it just doesn't work yeah like and i think this is such an important story because it doesn't work because i because i think you need that to explain to people what companies are saying when they're saying ai because again they're not they are not talking about we have a thing that can actually replace workers because they don't and they know they don't like no, the, the, the CEO, Elizabeth Thompson, she's under no illusion that this chat bot is the same as the 200 volunteer workers who are actual human beings, many of whom have actually gone through struggles with these same eating disorders and thus have personal experience and an ability to empathize with others going through the same thing. You know, they're not like, look, the bourgeois are stupid, but I, I mean, I, I, in this case, I don't necessarily think they're that stupid. It's that it doesn't have to replace the workers. It just has to create the fear that it could replace them. And we talked about this when we were talking about the writer strike. It's the same functionality as the McDonald's kiosk threat. It's the same thing. Every time, you know, the SEIU does one of their fight for 15 walkouts demanding $15 for fast food workers, which now isn't anywhere near enough and should be 25. But like immediately you get all these people up, oh, they're going to replace you with a kiosk. And then every time you've ever been to any sort of automated food system, it's dog shit. And that's why they haven't replaced people because the robots cannot replace the people. Yeah. It's but like its value remains incredibly high purely as a threat. If they felt comfortable replacing you with a kiosk just as a cost saving measure, it would have already happened. It exactly. would have happened a very long time ago in the 90s, probably. Right. And. That's the thing is it's, it's that like, this is, I like, I don't see this being a long-term thing. Like I, I predict within a year, this chatbot service will get shut down uh -huh. and they'll either just completely shut down the hotline entirely and move on to just providing online web-based resources, or they'll reopen the hotline with people again in a different location. That's not unionized because this thing doesn't work. It's not going to work. They know it's not going to work, but it's already largely fulfilled its purpose, right. which was to break the union. And the union in response has filed ULP charges against the NEDA for failing to bargain and for blatant retaliation. Uh, Abby Harper, a union member who authored the story on Labor Notes, said, quote, we plan to keep fighting. While we can think of many instances where technology could benefit us in our work on the helpline, we're not going to let our bosses use a chatbot to get rid of our union and our jobs. The support that comes from empathy and understanding can only come from people. And that's absolutely true. Yeah, a hundred percent. So 
I mean, just there's so much in that story. It's progressive nonprofits, once again, operating the same as capitalist industries. Weird. Uh, and, you know, fake AI that doesn't work still being used to sabotage a business in order to crush a union drive. Yeah, it's it's awful. But that's why, you know, we need to be showing solidarity with the writers on the writer strike fighting this stuff. Same thing with the actors and the directors, even the ones who are rich, because this is a fight that affects workers from, you know, all over uh, every industry. And so the people's war against AI needs all of us. Yeah. The proletarian jihad. <laughs> That's right. Um, but of course, we always try and end our stories before before we get to the meme review on a hot positive note. And this week we have a strike for you folks, a strike that won its key objectives. And this time it's a doctor strike. Uh, actually, a very rare doctor strike, not just in the United States, but specifically in New York City. So on Monday, May 22nd, resident doctors at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens walked out on the first strike by doctors in New York City in over 30 years. Uh, and primarily what they're striking over is pay disparity. Basically, these doctors are have been paid less doing the same exact work as their counterparts at other hospitals across the city. These doctors are organized with the C Committee of Interns and Residents, the CIR, which is an SEIU affiliate. And the doctors at Elmhurst make $7,000 a year less than the non-union doctors at Mount Sinai's Eastside Hospital, as reported by Amir Kafegi at the city. And that, that, that gap is actually scheduled to widen to $11,000 later this year. So these doctors decided they weren't going to stand for it. And after 92% of the doctors voted in favor, they hit the picket lines on Monday. And uh, one of these residents, and I'm going to do my best. I apologize if I fuck this up. Uh, Dr. Tanathun Kajorn Sakchai, uh, who is a union delegate and a fourth year psychiatry resident at Elmhurst, he told the city, quote, we see a huge discrepancy of how Mount Sinai treats their main campus residents versus the Elmhurst campus residents. And it's staggering and it is heartbreaking, end quote. Absolutely. Couldn't be more on the nose. And I mean, there's a huge parallel here to what we've seen with the junior doctors in the UK, where very similarly, hospital operators in the US exploit the labor of residents to do the same work as any other doctor for far lower wages due to their status as students. So Elmhurst residents haven't received a raise in over two years as Mount Sinai has dragged its feet at the bargaining table. The union has been forced to file multiple unfair labor practices against the company just to get them back to the the negotiating table in the first place. Mount Sinai is the same company that forced thousands of New York City nurses to strike back in January just to win fair wages and safe staffing, showing us a pattern of refusal to bargain in good faith that permeates the company. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it's just, it's so fucking sickening that we even let companies run this stuff in the first place. But, mm -hmm. um, so with near, uh, similar to nearly every organizing drive we cover on the show, residents told the city that the pandemic played a big role in making them more militant in wanting to be part of a union. The company's refusal to accept proposals for hazard pay in the event of future pandemics or the possibility of a different government recognizing the continuing COVID pandemic. Wow, that's an optimistic parenthetical in the notes. Um, Sorry. <laughs> exp 
<laughs> These things expose to many residents just how little Mount Sinai cares about its workers. We heard again from Dr. Kajoran Sakchai, who told the city, quote, when COVID started, it shifted the whole healthcare system of how things are running with uncharted territory. And unfortunately, Elmhurst Hospital was the epicenter for the world at one point. There were dead bodies everywhere with nowhere to go. We were there the whole time. And the fact that we were not compensated or at least acknowledged for that is disappointing. End quote. Uh, doctors at other hospitals throughout the city report caseloads as high as 40 patients at once while making only $17 an hour. In New York City? This is one of those things, like, one of the many, many things about the way our society functions that, like, working on this show has helped educate me on. Like, first learning, you know, learning about how little the junior doctors who are, like, the equivalent of the resident doctors in the U.S. over in the U.K. were making, like, (laughs) with the, summed up in a a meme of tins of beans per hour. (laughs) but then learning, it's like, oh, that's the same thing here in the U.S. too. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, we pay these folks nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like, we we pioneer ways to screw over the medical field here, and then we export it to places like true. the U.K. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, you ha- <laughs> this is actually one of the funnier things. Weirdly enough, we have a situation here where the city going to a public-private partnership actually sabotaged the state's prior attempts to keep these workers from striking. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that Elmhurst, this hospital in Queens, it is a publicly operated hospital. However, its residency program is privately managed by Mount Sinai. And therefore, these workers who are striking against Mount Sinai, not against Elmhurst are totally legally allowed to strike, despite the fact that New York is yet another of these supposedly progressive states that bans public workers from striking. And so this, thus, was the first strike at Elmhurst Hospital since 1979. God, I love a loophole. I love it when they try something and it's just not the right moment for that tactic. And the workers can (laughs) seize on it and do something cool like strike. What a fucking win. Yeah, and But despite the fact that their strike was totally legal, that didn't really matter, uh, at least as far as the police were concerned, who were immediately called to the picket line on Monday when doctors showed up to picket and uh, immediately started harassing striking workers, telling them they could not be on the public sidewalk in front of the building and forcing them to move to another spot. So the law under capitalism continues to be uh, pretty much whatever the ruling class says it is. Right. Well, after just three days, we did see on Wednesday that the CIRSEIU announced they had reached a tentative agreement with Mount Sinai to return to work. The new agreement includes wage increases of 6% each year for the next three years, differential pay raises to close the gap with other Mount Sinai workers of $3,500, a one-time bonus of $2,000, an agreement to negotiate hazard pay in the event of future pandemic declarations, and meal reimbursement during residence shifts. A couple of those are not so great. The one-time bonus of two grand and the agreement to negotiate in the future... Mm-hmm. that's the agreement to negotiate in the future is particularly worthless. Yeah, that, that sucks. But the core goal of the strike was to close that gap True. Uh, in wages. And they have achieved that after only three days, which I think is quite impressive. So it while is. they were forced to, as you pointed out to, uh, you know, compromise by taking one of those bonuses as a, a literal bonus instead of a raise. And you always want to get that as a, 
as a raise, not just a one-time bonus. Cause the one-time bonus doesn't carry over to future workers. Um, but, but again, they still, they hit their core goal and uh, in less than a week, which I think really just demonstrates again, that disconnect between how much we compensate these workers and uh, how vital their labor is to the functioning of everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's kind of funny. Absolutely. Cause like in this, in the same amount of time it's taken me to fart around on a three day weekend, they permanently changed their situation in the world. It's true. And that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And we have a, a statement from the union by Dr. Sarah Hafuth who said, quote, getting a multi-billion dollar revenue employer like Mount Sinai to move this far really shows what our movement as residents can achieve, even up against the most flagrant union busting and profit-driven corporations. Mount Sinai will now have to think twice about leaving Elmhurst behind and perpetuating these disparities for union doctors in the future. I also know that we are part of a larger ongoing fight for justice in our lives and in healthcare, and we plan on continuing that fight. End quote. Hell yeah. Love to see it, folks. Nothing better than continuing the fight. That's right. Well, the only thing that might be better than that, if there's mm. anything, is the meme <laughs> review. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Better than labor struggle memes. A how bit of memes apples and oranges. Yeah, how about memes about labor struggle? How That's about right. The mold section of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So this first one is a receipt drawing. uh, It's a good drawing. Yeah, it's actually really, it's pretty high quality. This person is quite the artist. Uh, It says, this is a drawing of a dinosaur. And then it's got this kind of like raptor looking dinosaur. It's a nice little line drawing with, it's got some shading. It's it's very nice. And then at the bottom it says, it is also my two week notice. (laughs) this is exactly actually this is still perhaps more respect than you should be giving your boss with your two weeks notice but it's extremely creative and very funny and so i like it i was faxed in my my two weeks notice except it wasn't two weeks notice it was i quit immediately please do not contact me (laughs) (laughs) well that's that's a you know i yeah i definitely don't want to talk shit on this uh but you know i always want to remind people that uh the boss will not give you two weeks notice when they are going to fire you That's and true. so you do not owe them the same courtesy well but if you want to if you want to mock them with a cool drawing of a dinosaur like this all on board yeah i mean <laughs> that's, that's right. where they really one up to me with this is i can't draw for shit i got stick figures <laughs> and, and i can do a little sun in the corner and not a lot else <laughs> yeah so <laughs> this next one is it starts with and it's basically it's a screen cap from like a uh, a news article and it's like a picture of a you know suburban street and then it's captioned Toronto landlord says she is working four jobs after tenants refuse to pay rent and then it's and then it's the meme format from Parks and Rec uh where Aziz. um Aziz um, is looking down at this picture and he's just it's beautiful I've looked at this for five hours now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They were forced to get real jobs. And then also yeah. face the conditions that working people have to face, like having to work for jobs to be able to pay for things. I also just don't believe them. I'm like three of those jobs are probably they like registered as a drop shipper on Etsy or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I gotta be honest. I've got <laughs> five or six jobs, but you know, that's uh, also like a bunch of little things here and there. It's like being a gig worker. Imagine, imagine being like a, an Uber driver and being like, I had eight jobs today. 
I mean, they, that would be 10,000 times more legitimate than any of the four jobs. I'm sure that this landlady was working. That's <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> this next one is a dating profile selection, uh, uh, like little bubble selector, like on a web site where it says I am. And then the options are man, woman. And the one that's selected is full-time employee on the clock looking for, and then the selection is woman, man. And then the third one that is selected is a car to hit me, which oh. is, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, t- that's quite a, quite a, uh, in, uh, a heavy a heavy one there you know i know yeah. that that feeling when working at a job though yeah well if you sincerely want a car to hit you uh try forming a union and picketing because those motherfuckers will probably try it and i guarantee <laughs> by that point you will have found your will to live again so this is a win-win <laughs> as far as i'm concerned <laughs> it's true but one car that prob that might not be hitting anybody anytime soon is actually our next meme holy shit <laughs> which is a picture, you know, it's there, they're, they're sitting in traffic. They're behind somebody stopped at, you know, a stop sign and it's this, uh, car. And on the back of it, it's got all this like caution tape all over it. It's got a Michigan license plate, which is calmly, <laughs> of course. And then Michigan. it's giant stickers that say caution, slow moving vehicle caution. This mo- vehicle makes frequent stops. And then at the center, it just says, send me money. I'll drive faster. And then it's got their Venmo and cash app and of the, slow they, POS. Yeah, I love this. It's just like very, very on its face. Like I'm going to drive slow. And, uh, you know, if you want me to go faster, pay me. This I, is a I Dutch like person. That. This is a hundred percent a Dutch person from like Zealand or over Who's like, uh, yeah, if I put the little Amish horse and buggy on the back of my car and drive slow to piss people off, I bet I can make more money than driving Uber. And they're probably right. They're probably right. <laughs> yeah, probably it, it, true. it reminds me of the comedian who's like, I put a bumper sticker on my car that said, how's my driving? And then I put my own cell phone number on it. So people would just call me to complain about my driving. <laughs> And I can tell them off however I want it. <laughs> that rocks. Well, um, our, our last meme is just a picture of a, like, it's all Instagram filtered up. So it's very glowy. And it's a little, is that a hamster? It looks I think so. Yeah, kind of. I think it's a hamster. It could be another small, cute rodent. Like a dwarf uh, hamster. A dwarf hamster in a tiny little, like, Barbie car wearing pink shades. And it says, the horrors persist but so do I. <laughs> Hell yeah. I like this. I, I love a good, like, you know, I know that things are bad, but you know, we got to keep fighting. Yeah. That's right. I very much like the, the memes of this vibe. Or, yeah. The memes of this vibe. Wow. Yeah. There you go. Nailed it. I very much like the vibes of this meme. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. So that's it for this week, folks. We want to thank you for listening. And if you'd like to support us as a listener, you are the perfect sort of person to support the show because we are entirely listener supported. Wow. You can do that at patreon.com <laughs> slash work stoppage. Uh, you can also jump in the discord and just hang out with us, or you can join the reading group happens on Saturdays at 1 PM Eastern time. And, uh, other than that, you could do a little extra and help by writing a review anywhere. 
you know, anywhere. Uh, you could follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain, follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod, listen to Beep Beep, let us listen to Red Game Table, and as always, labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever. Solidarity, everybody. Solidarity, everybody. I stole your line. Damn it. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I use the same opening on Wordle every time. I'm not changing. Yeah, me too. Ample. <laughs> No, you gotta use drive.